An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Holy Father, we thank you this morning for the mothers represented in our church family. Everyone has had a mother or has a mother alive. I thank you for my 89-year-old mother today and the chance you will give me later today to see her. May I be an encouragement to her. Thank you for my wife, the mother of our children. Thank you, our Father, for the moms that are here. Help them to excel even more. Help the older generation to be faithful, to take the Titus II ministry and to teach the next generation. Even out of failure, may they be true and cling to the Word of God. Now, Father, we thank you for your Word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You've given it to us as food, and so we come like newborn babes, to long for the pure, unadulterated milk of the Word that we might grow and respect our salvation. We humbly submit to its authority. We ask that you'd take it today and renew our minds, that our thoughts might be after your thoughts, that our ways might be after your ways. Now, Father, I can preach the Word, but only you can impart it. And so I pray that you'd come and help me, that you'd fill me and anoint me and use me, that together we might lift up our magnificent and precious Savior, in whose name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Take God's Word. Would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1? Most people can at least find Revelation and Genesis, the first and last book, but very often they don't know the difference between the two. In Genesis, the earth is created. In Revelation, the earth passes away. In Genesis, you have the first rebellion. In Revelation, you find the final rebellion. In Genesis, sin enters into the human race. In the Revelation, it comes to an end. In Genesis, the curse begins. In the Revelation, it is ending. In Genesis, death begins. In Revelation, it is forever squished and gone. In Genesis, man is banished from the garden. In the Revelation, he's brought back into the garden. In Genesis, man is given dominion, but it's removed because of his sin. In the Revelation, it is restored because of the gift of righteousness. We are in an exciting verse-by-verse study of this marvelous book. And today we turn a corner as we come into the second section where Jesus addresses seven literal actual churches. Now there's all kinds of organizations in this world, all kinds of uh, fellowships and clubs and so forth, but there's nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, like a spirit-filled, loving, local church. It is the greatest institution on the earth that God has developed. And a healthy church is an awesome testimony and it has tremendous power to influence the people of their generation. So here today, we will look at Jesus' address to seven churches. Specifically, 
We will look today at the church at Ephesus. We want to begin this morning in verse 19 where we left off last time. So follow along in your Bible. Revelation chapter 1 beginning now in verse 19. Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, and for the benefit of those of us who have been here who are trying to learn the book of Revelation, let me set the context for you. Many times, to understand an immediate context, you have to see the broad context. And when you see the big picture of any book of the Bible, the details will take on more meaning. We left off on verse 18. We come today to verse 19, which is really an outline of the book. Write the things which you have seen. Write the things which are. And then he says, write the things which will take place after these things. Three sections of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is the past. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the present. And chapters 4 through 22 deal with the future. You could certainly subdivide the book into smaller portions, but God gave us the key right in the front door of the Revelation so that we would not misinterpret it. God gave us a divine outline for this critically important book. Now, we've already discovered in verse 7 that the theme of the Revelation is found in verse 7. He is coming with the clouds. But the outline is right here in verse 19. The things which you have seen, that's the past. The things which are, that's the present. The things which are after these things. After these things. Metatata. The first three words of chapter 4 and verse 1 are the last three words of verse 19 of chapter 1. So in chapter 1, you see a picture of what John saw that we studied last week, the things that were. And so he wrote down for us the introduction to the book, the greeting from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, and then gave us a marvelous picture of the glorified Christ. Some of you said that was so helpful to me last week because some of us just have a picture of Jesus walking through the dusty streets of Israel. And while he is the same yesterday, today, and forever... He is now reigning and ruling in His glorified body. And it's important that we see Him as He is right now. The things present, 
That's the seven churches that we're going to study, and we'll take one week for each church, God willing. And then those things after these things, those are the future issues in the book, those things that are yet to take place. And so we'll see a picture of the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5, and then in beginning in chapter 6 with the four horsemen of the apocalypse all the way through, we will see the seal, trumpet, and bold judgment culminating with the second coming of Christ in His millennial reign. Or to say it differently, chapter 1 is about the Christ, chapters 2 and 3 about the church, and chapters 4 through 22 about the consummation. We find in chapter 1, Christ in His glory, and chapters 2 and 3, Christ in His church, Then in the rest of the book, Christ in His judgment. Now this is important, this outline, because again, it will keep you on track so that you will not misinterpret this book. Now look at verse 20, if you will. As for the mystery of the seven stars, this is a transitional verse, but it's still part of the vision because it explains the vision. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when Jesus says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw, of course, he's referring back to the vision that we studied very carefully last week. Look back on your page in verse 16. It says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And so now here in verse 20, he tells us that the seven stars represent seven angels. And we will see that these seven angels are over the seven churches that we are going to study in chapters 2 and 3. And I hope to show you today that these are not heavenly angels, but these are pastor angels, so to speak. The seven stars are the seven angels, and we will see that the seven churches are the seven lampstands. That's what he says. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, remember how the book began in our opening introductory message to the Revelation In chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation, apocalypsis, means to unveil. And so God gives us an unveiling of the glorified Christ in heaven, which God gave to who? To Him, to Jesus Christ, to show His bondservants. That's us. The things which must soon take place because once these events happen, we saw the word soon means fast. They will take place very, very quickly. Taxus, we get our word tachometer from it. And He sent, and notice, communicated it by His angel. Now, if you have the NASB, you will see the word communicated is footnoted, and it brings you out into the margin, and you see an alternate way in which to translate the Greek verb, and you could translate it signified. In fact, many English translations render it that way. I like the word signified because the first four letters are sign, S-I-G-N, signified. In other words, it is a particular word that describes a symbol that has meaning to it. John uses it all the way through his gospel. He speaks not of miracles, but of signs because he uses a specialized word for miracle, a miracle with a message. And so Jesus wants us to understand that he's going to communicate this revelation in signs, and each of the signs have very, very important 
meanings. So for instance, in Revelation chapter 12, the devil is called the great red dragon with a long tail that sweeps away a third of the stars out of the heavens. Now we will see in Scripture the term star is used of angels. It can refer to a literal star or it can refer to an angel. And we'll also see it can refer to a pastor. I'm a star. Star is born. Hallelujah. (laughs) Uh, We will study in Revelation 13 a beast coming up out of the sea. Again, it's signified. He's not talking about a literal beast like some Godzilla but he is speaking of this coming Antichrist who will come up out of the sea, out of the Gentile nation. So people ask me all the time, Pastor, do you take the Bible? Do you interpret it literally or symbolically? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Uh, I interpret symbols, but once you understand the meaning of the symbol, then you literally believe it. And so I want to emphasize that a symbolic interpretation does not dismiss a literal belief in the Word of God. Now, the code for understanding the Revelation is sometimes within the Revelation itself. We just read in verse 20, some of the mystery was lifted. We now know what a lampstand is. We now know what a star is. We know what an angel represents. He just told us. If he didn't give us verse 20, we might be guessing. So much of the revelation will interpret itself. You just read the next verse or the next paragraph. We saw that critical to understanding the revelation, and this is why I taught you the book of Daniel before we planted our feet here, is the prophet Daniel. Because he gives the prophetic schedule for the revelation. And he will give us many symbols that are interpreted. But most of the symbols in the revelation, if they're not interpreted in the book themselves, is interpreted in the rest of the Old Testament. There are 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the 404 verses of the Revelation. Now, sometimes you'll hear a pastor or a theologian say, oh, 600 or 800, but they're double counting. There are parallel texts that are repeated, but there's 300 specific allusions. That's 74% of the book of Revelation. And yet, the allusions are never specifically introduced, like Moses said or David said or Jeremiah said. But they're assumed you have a certain knowledge. And so Revelation is an ignored book because the Old Testament is a closed book to many people. For many of you, the uh, only marked up section of your Bible is the Psalms and the Proverbs, and the rest of it is pretty clean. And so if we don't know our Old Testament, it will be difficult to understand Revelation. So you be patient with me because there are many, many brand new Christians who are just cracking the Bible for the first time in both these services and on our other campuses, and I will laboriously explain it to them. And if you don't want me to do that and you start yawning, it tells me how out of touch you are with what you are supposed to be doing, and that is helping new Christians to grow. You say, well, why didn't God just interpret the symbol for us? There's a reason for it. One, when you see a symbol and then you have to think about what the symbol means, it causes you to reflect and to ponder and to get this message deep down into your heart. Not to mention that many of the symbols help us to clearly see the picture. The fact that he tells us seven churches are pictured by seven lampstands. What a marvelous, beautiful picture. Especially in a day when there was no electricity, lampstands in a home or a business or a gathering was absolutely critical at night to dispelling the darkness. Jesus said, you 
are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So he says, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works. That's what a church is to be. A lampstand, a light to dispel the darkness of sin all around us. Now, before we open the first letter and read it for ourselves, let me make some general observations concerning these seven letters. First of all, these are literal churches. These are not epics of time and church history. These are literal churches that represent real people, not only in that generation, but every generation. Here's a map here for you of the seven churches. You can see we're going to follow them right as they were written. Ephesus up to the top of the horseshoe and back down again, ending with Laodicea. That's the exact order that Jesus unfolds these seven churches for us. Now, the order follows a circular path of seven postal districts that existed in first century Rome. If you remember from Daniel chapter 6, we studied King Darius, the famous Persian emperor. We met him when Daniel was in the lion's den. And one of the things that he was known for, this section of the world was part of his empire, is he developed a network of roads paved and leveled. They were called highways. And they were literally highways. They were higher than the road around them. They built it up with stone. The Roman government would later perfect the, the road system such that literally all roads led to Rome. And God in his sovereignty at just the right time and the fullness of time brought his son into the world with a universal language, with the Roman peace, with a Roman road system in which to spread the gospel. But the common people typically could not go on the highway because there was a tax, a toll that you had to pay as in many toll roads today. So they would go on the low way. They would go on the byway, the hedge that was adjacent to the highway. And so Jesus tells us in Luke's gospel, go into the highways and the byways and bring them into his feast. He was basically saying, go to the rich, go to the poor, go to the connected, go to the unconnected. He's not a respecter of persons. Bring them all in. And they had also developed not only a marvelous road system, but a fantastic postal system. Herodias, the Greek uh, historian, was so impressed with the postal system that was initially developed by Darius that he wrote these words, uh, they are, if you've ever been to the New York City main post office, if you're ever in New York City, you can't miss it. It's two blocks long, all these beautiful Corinthian columns. And you go inside and on the wall is the quotation from Herodias, the Greek historian. And he's commenting, if you know the context, on the postal system that was in existence when this letter was written. Neither snow nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. And so here was a letter that would go to seven different postal districts. And John specifically writes to these seven churches and not others. Why seven churches? Why not three? Why not ten? There's over a hundred known churches in this region of the world. Why didn't he write the church at Rome? Why not the church in Jerusalem that the apostles initially gave leadership to? Why not the church at Antioch? Why not Colossus? 
Colossae was six miles away from Laodicea. Why didn't they go there? Troas, it's up in this same region. Why didn't he write to the church at Troas? Most of you remember the church at Troas, right? Remember that man who fell asleep in church, literally? Hmm? And he fell down from the second story and was dead, and Paul the apostle raised him back up? Why didn't he write to them? There's a reason. Let me give you four reasons today. You might want to jot them down. Number one, he wrote to these seven so that you could not misstate the book. So that you could not put an early date in the book. We established not only from the historical record, but from within the Scripture, that the date that Christians had believed from the time of the church fathers, 95 A.D. was when this book was written. But in more recent years, there's a view, we'll discuss it again later on, it's called the preterist view of interpreting the Revelation. And the preterist view that is held by guys like Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, R.C. Sproul, and a number of others I won't bother to mention, says that the whole book was written and completed before 70 A.D. So they would say all the future events that we're going to study in chapters 6 through 19, with the exception of the bodily return of Jesus from heaven, is all history. It already happened. Now, this was a view that was initially started by Roman Catholics. And one of the reasons they started it was basically to usurp the place that God had given Israel. To say that the Roman Catholic Church was the new Israel. And some of the Protestant reformers embraced that. They just put a different spin on it. They said, well, the body of Christ, born again Christians are the new Israel. Oh, no, no, we are not. God has a plan for Israel. And we will see that one of the functions of the Great Tribulation in the Old Testament called the time of Jacob's trouble is to bring the Jewish people to faith in the one whom they pierce. They will look at Yeshua and they will say, Hamasiach, He is the Messiah. And so this is not a history book. These are future events. How do you know that, Pastor? How can you be so sure just from the church fathers and other things? All you have to do is read these seven churches that he wrote. For instance, take the church at Ephesus. Jesus today will say they had left their first love. And he will also mention that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which he also hated. Now, if John had written the Revelation in 65 AD, as some say, with all of it fulfilled by the time Rome comes in and, and crushes Jerusalem, then such a statement would have overlapped with Paul's letter to the Ephesians in his letters to Timothy. And yet, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he describes it as one of the healthiest churches in all the New Testament. Or take the church at Smyrna. It didn't even exist when Paul marched upon the Roman roads. Or take the church at Laodicea. Three times in Paul's letter to the Colossians, the church at Laodicea is mentioned. And they're commended. They're a wonderful church. But not at this time in human history when Jesus writes a letter to them because this is a second generation church and Jesus will rebuke them. So again, why these seven? Why not over a hundred? Because these seven represent real people in real cities with real problems and because the chief shepherd loves his church and because the chief shepherd only loves these seven churches but all of his churches, he sent 
us these seven letters so that we can study from them, that we might learn from them, which brings us to the third reason why he addresses seven churches. When you read Christ's assessment of all seven churches, there's one common phrase in all seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not to the church, but to the churches, plural. He wants the seven churches, not just to read their letter, but he wants all seven of these churches in Asia Minor, in the province of Asia, not the continent of Asia as we call it today, but it was a province within Rome. He wants all seven churches to read it so that they can learn from each other and guard their hearts and be edified together. But he wrote these not just for those seven churches, but for the churches throughout the time that Jesus is building his church. The letter to the Corinthians, the letter to the Romans wasn't just for them. It's for us. It's for Christians in all generations to read. And so as we read through these churches, we would be wise to do some self-analysis because we might not be either corporately or individually where we think we are. It's possible to be a church like the church at Philadelphia with a great opportunity. It's possible to be a church like the church at Ephesus that had left its first love. And so we need to look carefully and to see what Jesus says because what Jesus thinks about the church is what's important. Not what I think about our church. Not what the church growth people think about our church. What Jesus says about the church is, is what is critically important. But there's a fourth reason why he addresses these seven churches, and that not only does he address congregations as a whole, he addresses individuals within the congregation. Remember, this church is the sum total of all of its members. If everyone in this church were just like you, what would Community Bible Church be like? And so Jesus says, let him who has an ear. Anybody here have an earlobe? Dr. Pentecost, one of my favorite professors in seminary. You say, anybody here have an ear? Then listen up to what the Lord Jesus says to you. Now, we're going to see that not only does he give commendations, he also gives rebukes. And it's possible to think that you are one way when in reality you are not. Now, there's a pattern, and let me just remind you of the pattern. Each of the seven letters ends with the same admonition. Everyone has an ear, listen to what he says to the churches. And each of the seven churches begins with a character trait of Jesus. And we will see that. And the character traits that we will find in the seven churches, with the exception of one, come right out of chapter one. Why don't you go this week, go back, and see if you can match up the character traits of Jesus in the seven churches and where they come from in chapter one, and come back and tell me which church doesn't have a character trait, and tell me why. Mm, There's an exercise for you. Now, he describes each church by beginning with himself, because each church needs to keep their eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then after he gives a character trait with all seven churches, he gives an evaluation, though the evaluations are different. With two of the churches, number five and seven, Sardis and Laodicea, he says nothing good about those churches. He doesn't start by saying, well, let me tell you all the good things. He goes right to the rebuke after he describes himself. 
with two of the churches, number two and number six, Smyrna and Philadelphia. He says nothing bad about them. And so most churches say, oh, we're like Smyrna or we're like Philadelphia. Well, I hope we are. He just goes right to the good. But with the other churches, one, three, and six, he first describes himself. He then says what they're doing well, and then he says what they are doing wrong, and he ends each letter in the same way. Now, if you move to a new community, and many, especially our Marines and Navy personnel, do that quite often, you know how frustrating it can be sometimes to find a healthy church. And so what do you look for? There's a lot of churches that are dying, many that are dead. The Wall Street Journal projects 50,000 churches in America will close in the next 10 years. I preached a funeral yesterday at a little precious church, had a great history. One of the dear saints there basically told me we're clinging on for life, just trying to keep the doors open. A lot of churches like that in America. And then there are some churches that have big congregations. But Jesus doesn't think much of them. I mean, think about it. Think about the church at Laodicea. They thought they were rich. Jesus said they were poor. Or think about the church at Smyrna. They thought they were poor. Jesus said they were rich. And so what we think is not nearly as important as what the Lord Jesus thinks about the church. And that's rather humbling. Because it causes us to reflect and to carefully say, Lord Jesus, what say you of this church? And so as we go through this book, remember a church, this church is the sum total of its individuals. Now that's by way of background. Let's dig into the letter. I want to begin this morning with how Jesus examines their reputation. He begins by examining the reputation of the church in Ephesus. We read now in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now we need to begin by asking a question. Who is this angel of the church? Basically, two views are held, and a lot of the confusion is really more rooted, I think, in the English Bible than in other language translations. One view says that the angels are literal angels or guardian angels who are over various congregations. Of course, the major problem with that view is first, how would an angel come to the church and deliver the message? And why would an angel come and deliver a message and preach a message to a church? In fact, the New Testament never, ever, ever shows an angel coming to a local church to preach a message. It does teach the angels come to a local church to watch the saints. I hope you realize it. Paul teaches it in his letter to the Corinthians that there's more of us here than you see with the visible eye. That when the church gathers for worship, there are angels in our presence, watching and learning from the body of Christ. And the thought that there are guardian angels for a church, there may be, but there's no textual scriptural evidence anywhere in the Word of God that would teach that. And it seems rather convoluted that an angel is going to come to a church in Ephesus and give them a message. Second, People take these angels not to be literal angels in these seven churches, but human messengers, pastors. You say, are, is there any precedent for calling an angelos, an angel, 
a human. Yes, there is in both Hebrew and in Greek. The word for angel in Greek is angelos. In Hebrew, it is malach. And both the Hebrew and the Greek word can be used to describe a literal angel or a human messenger. Now, I say the problem is largely a problem of the English Bible because in most other languages of the world, when even a human is clearly in view, they just translate it Moloch angel or Angelos angel. And they leave it up to the reader to figure out what is in view. And so people don't always think. Now, let me give you some examples in the Scripture where you have a word that can have a technical, formal meaning in one context and an entirely different meaning in another context. Jesus, for instance, in Mark 10, when His disciples are having a little battle over who's the greatest in the kingdom, He said, It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your diaconist, your deacon, many languages of the world say, your servant. Many languages don't even translate the word. They just write, they transliterate the word. When you transliterate the word, you take the sounds and you put it right into their language. Let him be the deacon of all. Now, is he speaking of a literal deacon or just someone who's a servant? A servant, and so our English Bibles translate it that way. We know it's different from the usage of the same word, say in 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons. Diakonoi, plural, likewise, must be men of dignity. And so he gives the qualifications for a deacon, implying not everyone can meet those qualifications, yet everyone can be a deacon in the sense they can be a servant. Not everyone can be a deacon in the sense that they serve in the office of deacon. Again, most languages of the world just leave it untranslated and they leave it for you to figure out. Let me give you another example. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, an apostolos, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is reminding the recipients of this letter in the city of Rome that he is writing as God's slave and as God's apostle. He is coming with the authority of Jesus Christ. And yet, when you read Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the second chapter, the 25th verse, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is your apostolos. We translate it messenger, but in most languages of the world, it just says he's your apostle. You say, wait a minute. Epaphroditus was not one of the 15 apostles mentioned in the New Testament because to be an apostle, you had to have been hand-selected by Christ. And if you were one, you would have the signs, wonders, and miracles that would confirm that you were selected by Him. So in what sense is he an apostolos, an apostle? The word apostle means sent one, like the word deacon means a servant. He's a sent one. He's sent to the churches. Last week, we sent some of the pastors here to the church there in Graniteville. They are sent ones. They are coming to help and, and they are called alongside to serve the saints that are there. Now again, in most languages of the world, it's not translated. You figure it out. So it is with the word angel. The problem is, is that in the English Bible, they're not consistent. Sometimes they translate the word, sometimes they don't. And so, what does the word angel here mean? And does the word angel ever refer to someone who's not a literal angel? Yes, it does. 
The word angelos means a messenger. In Hebrew, it is malach. So think about it. You remember Daniel 6? Daniel said to Darius, God sent his malach, his angel, to shut the mouths of the lions. And so God protected him that night. And yet the prophet Haggai in chapter 1 and verse 13 is called God's angel, God's messenger. The forerunner of the Lord in the book of Malachi is God's malach, God's messenger. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, now in this sixth month, the angel, the angelos, Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. This is a literal angel. This is not some human. Yet in Luke chapter 7, verse 24, John's disciples are like the, like John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord, is called an angel. When the angelos, the angeloi, it's plural, when the angels, when the messengers of John had left. So, obviously, in every instance, an angel is not a literal angel, and you have to figure that out. Now, some 20 years ago, when we first saw, we had actually been involved for a couple years at that point with a church in Leighton, Ukraine, some of the dear sisters cross-stitched me a beautiful piece of artwork, and they wrote, to the angel of the Carl, to the angel Carl at the church in Beaufort. Now, did they think I was a literal angel? No. In fact, I think the Ukrainian Bible translates in angel uh, when they come to those words for messenger rather than put it in uh, as messenger. They, they, they were saying, I'm God's messenger. I'm an angel. Hey, I'm an angel. You can call me Angel Carl if you want. That's what God says. I'm God's messenger as every pastor is. Now, this is interesting because he speaks to the angel singular, not to the angels. And some are kind of surprised by that. Now, some conclude for a single elder form of government. So in some independent churches in the world, there is not a plurality of pastors. There's one pastor. And they would argue for a singular pastor from Christ's seven letters here in the Revelation. Or then some would argue, no, he's talking about the super pastor within the city. And they create a hierarchy. There's the pastor, and then there's the bishop, who's over all the pastors. Well, interestingly, in Acts and in Paul's letters, the word bishop and pastor and elder is used interchangeably, sometimes within the sentence to refer to the same person or groups of persons. So that doesn't make any sense. The whole idea of this hierarchy developing is not really a biblical principle. And so God has His angels. Now, if I were to ask you, uh, if someone said to you, hey, who's the pastor of Community Bible Church? You'd probably say, well, Pastor Carl Brogy. Well, I am the angel, the pastor, in the sense that I am, to use modern terminology, the senior pastor, but I'm not the only pastor. There's a plurality of pastors here. If any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural, of the church, singular. And yet, 
clearly in the New Testament, while elders are equal, there's a leader amongst equals. If I asked you who the pastor is at First Baptist Church Atlanta, you'd say Charles Stanley. And yet he has over 20 pastors on the staff. So he is addressing what we would today call the senior pastor to the angel or the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, if you've ever been to Ephesus, it's a magnificent city in terms of its ruins. Here's the uh, auditorium that Paul wanted to get into. Remember, he went in there to preach the gospel and the city was so radically changed that the sales had plummeted in the city of Ephesus. And the silversmiths were all upset because people weren't buying their trinkets like they were. And they have this rally there in this Colosseum that's full. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember that? It's an incredible scene to read of there in the Acts of the Apostles. And we stood here a few years ago. Some of you are with me. This was marvelously preserved, covered in sand for centuries. Here's another picture of Ephesus. This was the facade of the front of the library where some 200,000 volumes once were housed, ever before there was a printing press. And here's the promenade. Don't think of this as some small little dusty town when you think of Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It would be comparable to Orlando, Florida. There was a quarter of a million people who lived in this place. It's not some dirty little dusty street with camels running down. It's a very large commercial cosmopolitan town. It's the fourth largest city in the world when this letter is written. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now each of the seven letters again begins with a personal designation of the Lord Jesus and the one that he selects for every church is critically important in light of the health of that church. And we will see that as we work through these seven churches. In Revelation 1 and verse 12 and then again in verse 16 and then the interpretation in verse 20, Jesus is described as holding in his hands the seven stars which are the seven angels or the seven pastors. And certainly this local church and the city of Ephesus had some choice leaders. Apostle Paul planted this church. He was there for three years. He was followed by Timothy. The Apostle John, who writes the Revelation, pastored this church at one time himself. And he holds the seven stars, the seven angels, the seven pastors in his hands. And I thank God that he does. And because he holds us in his hands, sometimes he brings a pastor to a church, and sometimes he moves a pastor from a church. But I thank God that he not only holds the seven pastors, he holds the seven churches, and he walks among us, and with his nail-scarred hands, he's caring for his people. It's a picture of his ownership. It's a picture of his presence, of his care, and of his control. And so what he does now is he affirms them for four strengths that are true of them. Number one, they were a diligent church. Point A there on your outline. They were a diligent church. He begins, I know your deeds. And how gracious to start with a word of commendation. This church was not dead. They were diligent in serving the Lord. They were busy doing deeds, or some of your translations say 
works. No doubt their week was full of activities. They met for fellowship, for prayer meetings, for outreach. You know, I like to read sometimes church marquees, and one caught my attention. Some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad. But this one, it said, a going church for a coming Lord. I'd like that. A going church for a coming Lord. That's the church at Ephesus. They were a going church. They were diligent. They weren't lazy. God doesn't bless laziness. God blesses diligence. And they were busy doing good works for Jesus. By the way, Ephesians is one of the books in the New Testament that has some of the great work verses in it. Most of you have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 memorized. If you don't, you should. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. Salvation is not something you pull off. It is the gift of God. Gifts are not earned. They are humbly received. The free gift of God is eternal life. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven today and you die doing that, you'll go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. You have to receive the gift of God that is not as a result of works. It's not a reward for anything you do. Therefore, no one can boast or brag. Now, sometimes we preach so much about the grace of God that we think that good works really don't matter, but they do. The next verse says, for we are his workmanship, poema. We are his poetry. We are God's poetry created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works, but we're saved to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, God has a plan for your life. There's a set of works that God prepared for you to walk in. Certainly, there's some general works that apply to us all, but God has a specific plan as it relates to your life. And if you walk closely with Him, you'll walk in those works. So works are not the root of salvation. They're the fruit. They're not the cause, but they're definitely the consequence, the result of someone who is saved. And so Jesus looked at this church, and the first thing He says is, I know your deeds. Faith without works is dead. Jesus, the Bible says in Acts 10, went about doing good. And in the Sermon on the Mount, I've already quoted it, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here was a serving, loving, reaching, witnessing church for Jesus Christ. I know your deeds. They were diligent. Secondly, I want you to see they were a dedicated church, a dedicated church. We read now in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil. Now, there's different words for toil or work in the New Testament, and Jesus selected the word kopos. It's a word for work that doesn't mean just to labor, but to work to the point of exhaustion. These were Christians who are willing to pay a price to serve the Lord. Not only were they working, they were working hard. Jesus said, I know all about your blood, sweat, and tears. They certainly were not like the fellow who said, now I lay me down to sleep. The sermon is long. The subject is deep. If he should quit before I wake, give me a nudge for goodness sake, all right? Hey, look, there's a lot of churches in America that are, spiritually speaking, sound asleep. Not this church. This was not a group of people who were straddling the pews. These were people who didn't come to sit, soak, and sour. These were people who loved the living God and were working. 
You knew what they were about in the church. If some of, if all the members were like some of you, we would have no church this morning. Because some of you have never served anywhere and you have no intention of ever serving anywhere. That's sad. Not the church at Ephesus. Notice the second description. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. If you have the NASB, it brings you out into the margin and it translates the Greek as steadfast. In other words, this was a steadfast church. This was a dedicated church. Hupamone is the Greek. It speaks of endurance or perseverance in the midst of difficulty. And so the English standard renders it with two words, patience enduring. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's where these people. Jesus says, I know what you're facing. I understand that you are working to the point of perspiration. And not only you are working to the point of perspiration, you are persevering. You are not quitting. You are hanging in there week after week and year after year. They had been doing this now for over 40 years since Paul started this church. Jesus saw their deeds and their toil and their perseverance. And because they were a a diligent church and a determined church, he then goes on and he affirms them that they are a disciplined church. They're a disciplined church. Follow closely now, verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So the Ephesian church was a disciplined church. Number one, they did not tolerate evil men. For those who would pollute the Word of God, for those who would dilute the Word of God, they said, no way, we are not going to let you be a part of this church. Now on the one hand, the Bible is very clear that a local church should help the weak. But on the other hand, the Bible is very clear that we are not to tolerate those who bring falsehood into the church. The whole concept of biblical separation is virtually gone in modern-day evangelicalism. And if you take a stance and you say, I won't fellowship with that church because of such and such, you are labeled as unloving, unkind, evil, and on and on and on they'll go. And so there were some apostles, not apostles meaning one of the twelve, say, or the fifteen, but there were sent ones like Epaphroditus, and there would be people who would be sent to different local churches to come alongside and to help them out. Greg and, I mean, Jeff and Brad are in the Bluffton Hilton Head campus there as sent ones from this fellowship, helping the fellowship of believers that are there this morning, coming alongside. And so there were people, just like last week, we sent some to Grandfield who would come alongside. But when they showed up at Ephesus, these who came saying, look, I'm a, a representative, I've been sent here. They put them to the test. They made sure that they were legitimate. Now, Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount that there would be men who would come like wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul, when he met with the Ephesian pastors, and it was plural, for the last time in Acts chapter 20 on that beach, he said, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves, not only will they come from the outside, some will infiltrate from the inside. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And the Apostle Paul would have been thrilled to have heard Jesus' commendation. For 40 years you did what I said. Now, we must never forget that just as God has His real pastors, the devil has his pastors. And these people are to be detected and rejected. I read just recently of Chaplain Gavin Ashton. He's the chaplain to the Queen in Scotland. And he recently resigned from the Church of Scotland because on Epiphany Sunday, some churches are more liturgical and they have certain Sundays by certain names. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. And so you have Christmas, and usually the week after you have Epiphany Sunday, where you have the appearing of the wise men, and they celebrate that. So on Epiphany Sunday, the churches in Scotland were asked not to read Matthew 2 of the wise men that affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus, but they were instead to read as a bridge-building exercise, Surah 19 from the Quran that denies Christ's deity. In the Ephesian church, they had high spiritual standards. They screened out the bugs that the light attracted, and we need to do that. And so in essence, when someone came in, they said, before you teach, we need to find out some things about you. We need to make sure that you are squared away Christian, that you know what you're about. Look, we have churches in this town that are doing homosexual marriages. Homosexual people are welcome here. And listen, being a homosexual, that's not what you are. That's what you do. You don't have to do sin any more than an adulterer has to live the lifestyle of an adulteress. You have choices that you can make. If any man is in Christ, he can be forgiven. He can become a new creation and God can renew your mind. But we have churches that have taken away from the Word of God or added to the Word of God. Paul, he's homophobic. Paul didn't do gay marriages, but we will. That's what they say. They tolerate evil men. And God calls them evil. Why does God call churches like that with pastors like that as evil? Because they are leading people straight to hell. God's heart is not for people to perish, but to go to heaven. And when you lower the law, the law that's supposed to be lifted up because it serves as a schoolmaster to lead you to Christ, when you look into the law, you see your face is dirty. You see your soul is dirty like looking into a mirror. And if a church says homosexuality is okay, transgenderism is okay, getting high is okay, having sex before you're married is okay, having an open marriage is okay, they're evil. And they are leading people straight into the flames of hell. But not the Ephesian church. They clung on to sound doctrine. They were disciplined as to who they let in their pulpits. D, they were a devoted church. They were a devoted church. Look now at verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Now, particularly commendable 
was the fact not only that they had not grown weary, they had not quit, but they had not quit for His namesake. I mean, think about this for a moment. I mean, this was a famous church. Someone could say, well, oh, we know the church at Ephesus. That's the one the Apostle Paul started. That's the one Timothy, his protege, pastored for a time. That's the one that great order and preacher of the gospel of Paulus spoke at. That's the one that the Apostle John, who wrote three letters in the New Testament, pastored. No, this was not a church that was full of themselves. They persevered for Christ's namesake, for His honor, for His glory. They had their share of opposition. They persevered. They had not grown worry, worry. They hung in there. They would not quit. They were kind of like a Navy SEALs of the first century in terms of evangelical churches. You say, what could be wrong with a church like this? If you find a church like this, you say you ought to join it. But then Jesus describes them as a deluded church. They were a deluded church. They had an appraisal of themselves that was not entirely accurate. So Jesus makes it clear. Verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now word order in Greek, as in other case languages of the world, are very, very important because they don't use, you know, red ink or highlights. And so the way you emphasize something is by word order. And the word order here is not the typical order in the Greek New Testament. It literally reads, your first love you have left. 35, 40 years earlier, Paul commended them in Ephesians 1 for their great love for Jesus. But now Jesus said they had left their first love. And please understand, this is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It does not say they had lost their first love. They had left their first love. There is a distinction between leaving and losing. You can lose something quite by accident and not know where it is. But when you leave something, you know exactly where it is. These were second generation Ephesians who were lacking in their once deep first love for Jesus. The spiritual honeymoon had basically dwindled. Now you can read between the lines. Maybe they were so busy focusing on doctrinal heresy that their warm noses had become cold hearts. I don't know. You know, sometimes people focus on something so intently that they missed the main thing. Maybe they were so busy serving the Lord, which is a commendable thing, they had become like Martha. You remember Mary and Martha. You remember Meatloaf Martha. You know, she's there and she's all consumed with the work in the kitchen. And Jesus said Mary had chosen the better thing because she was there at the feet of the Lord Jesus. In fact, every time she appears, that's where you find her in Scripture. Now, they had left their first love. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't love Jesus. They just didn't love Jesus the way they used to love Jesus. They, they, they were serving Jesus. And if you serve Jesus, I mean, if you love Jesus, you don't have to be begged to serve. You know, a mother doesn't have to be begged to, to stay up all night with her sick child. She does it because she loves the child, right? There's your Mother's Day sermon if you need one, all right? <laughs> 
Some of you love Jesus and you serve Jesus. You just don't love Jesus the way you used to love Jesus. And that love has somewhat worn down. The prophet Jeremiah in the second chapter describes God's love for Israel and Israel's love for God like a honeymoon kind of love. Now certainly, we're not talking here just about feelings. In fact, if you're married long enough, your love should grow and it should deepen and it should mature. But their love had been replaced. In some marriages, they become kind of routine. And when you take your spouse for granted, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. When you just live together and you don't love each other. I'm not talking about just some feeling here. But we're talking about a resolve that comes out of a heart that is passionate over the kindness and grace and the mercy that Jesus Christ has brought. The honeymoon was over. It had dwined for these people and they had lost perspective. And so Jesus is going to tell them how to regain perspective. He doesn't just castigate them and say, well, you know, this is the way it is. Sorry, sayonara. He then goes on to explain how they can fix it. Now, when Jesus says he has something against the church, you ought to listen. And you shouldn't listen just corporately. You need to listen individually. That brings me to the second point. Jesus explains their remedy. He explains their remedy. I mean, you, you read this church, you say, well, they're not idolaters. They're not engaged in the worship of Diana. They're sound in doctrine. I mean, how bad can it be? Well, look at verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So Jesus underscores the problem, but now gives us the solution. And there are three critical R's. If you don't get anything else out of the sermon, remember these three R's. First of all, Jesus speaks to them about remembering, about remembering. You might want to underline or circle the second word in the verse. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. In fact, it's a verb tense. Keep on remembering what you have lost so that you can once again regain it. I want to take you back on your spiritual journey for just a moment. I just want to think you to think for just a moment about your own spiritual pilgrimage. I don't know. For some of you, it started a week ago. For some of you, it started 40 years ago. But I want to ask you, was there a time in your life when you loved Jesus Christ more than you do today? When you were more passionate about serving Him and loving Him than you are right now? If that's true, then you're backslidden and you have left your first love. Again, Jeremiah 2 likens Israel's love to a honeymoon love of the husband and wife. Someone said the honeymoon is over when you reach that period somewhere between I do and you better, you know. I don't know exactly when that happens, but listen, the honeymoon love is different, but it should mature and it should deepen and it should grow. And sometimes people have taken their love for Jesus for granted. And they're just coasting. So remember, 
Is that not what the prodigal son did? He remembered when he was there in the pig pen what it was like back in the father's house. And some of us would do well to be still before God and just to remember today what it was like so that you can rekindle it. That brings me to the second word, repent. Jesus speaks to them not just about remembering, but repenting. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. The second command is repent. That's a nao. It means literally to change your mind. You see, this lack of first love is not some small thing. It's a sin. It's a horrible, heinous, terrible, hurtful sin. Why? Because the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And not to do that is to break the greatest of all the commandments. So don't get the idea that we're talking about, you know, some teenage love germ where you fall in and out of love. We're not talking about here about a feeling. We're not talking about some sentimental kind of slush. We're talking about some spiritual concrete with steel in it. A love that is built on a growing truth and understanding of who Jesus is as revealed in the Scripture. And if you've lost that, you need to come to the Lord today and say, Lord, I don't love you the way I used to. You used to be the center of my affection. I used to think about you day and night. I used to talk about you wherever I went. I would share you with whoever you gave me opportunity. I would reach out to the lost and invite them to church. I would share my testimony. I would take people through the plan of salvation. I would serve in your church. I used to walk with you and talk with you. I'd go into the supermarket and you and I would be having a conversation and whether it was cutting the grass or painting the house or changing a diaper, whatever it was, you were in the center of my life. And some of you know that's no longer true. And Jesus would say, repent. Third, Jesus speaks to them about repeating. About repeating. Verse 5, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. He's asking them to do the deeds, that is to repeat their first works. That is, you go back to the basics. You go back to some of those first actions you did when you were first in love with Jesus. I mean, think about it. Do you remember when you used to spend time lingering in the Word of God? Do it again. Do you remember when there was a time when you would literally go into your prayer closet and pour your heart out before the Lord? Do it again. Do you remember that, that time when you just, just loved being with God's people? You showed up in the middle of the week because it was so exciting to you to gather with God's people? Do it again. Do you remember when you used to tell people all the time about Jesus and reach out? Do it again. Pursue it again. Finally, Jesus speaks to them about removing about removing. Verse 5, let's read the whole verse now. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He warned them that if they did not respond, the light of their witness would be extinguished. I will remove your lampstand from its place so back to the original question, is losing your first love serious? If Jesus has something against you, it's real serious. And it's super serious. 
when he removes the lampstand of a church. You know, there was some, one of those Presbyterian churches in our town that does gay marriages was once a great church in Beaufort. They sent missionaries, but now they propagate evil. God removed their lampstand. Unless we be proud or arrogant, God could remove the lampstand of this church. And while He may not do it corporately, He could do it on your life individually. And when a church loses its lampstand, they may come in and turn on the lights and have their potlucks and everything else, but there's no viable witness for Jesus Christ. The Lord wants us to hear what He's saying to His churches. And He wants us to hear it not just corporately. He wants us to hear it individually. Yet, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're out of time, but for the we'll, we'll come to that. I'll just deal with it later on when we come to the church of Pergamum in detail. But let me just say, if you hate something that Jesus hates, you're on the right track. Then verse 7, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, it's not only a corporate challenge, it's a personal challenge. If you have an ear on your head, Jesus is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now listen, if you do hear this morning, if you have real ears to hear, you take the steps if you need to, to remember, to repent, and to repeat, then Jesus reminds us that what was lost will be restored. This church had lost the bliss of paradise, and Jesus wants to restore it in their fellowship. And He can restore it not only in a church, but He can restore it in an individual. Now, if you're here today and you're not saved, your greatest need is to establish a first love by calling upon Jesus Christ in faith. But if you are here and you are saved, it may be that your first love needs to be restored. And it's a terrible thing to have a saved soul in a broken life. You can go out that door and the years can turn into decades. And some pastor may preach over your casket. I preached over a servant yesterday, and I'll do another one on Tuesday, Wednesday over a servant of God. But there are some caskets I preach over who I know have saved souls, but broken lives. And Jesus... Is worthy of so much more. Our Father, we thank You for the magnificent love that You've shown us in Jesus. Thank You for the things that we can learn from each of these seven churches. But help us not just to listen corporately, Help us to listen as individuals. 
There are some people here who have had a consistent first love their whole life, and I thank you for that. But there are others that have lost that first love, and you need to restore it. May today be a turning point. May your will be accomplished in the lives of your church. Help someone here today, Father, who's never been saved, to realize that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Thank you that you can make that promise because of the payment he made for our sin debt. Help someone in simple, childlike faith to believe your word, for you cannot lie. Help them to come in faith and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help those that, who are members of the universal body of Christ. You said the gates of hell will not prevail against that. But while you will accomplish what you want to do in your universal church, you may not do it in a local church and you may not do it in a local life. So search our hearts, O oh God. Help us not to be deceived. See if there be any wicked way in us that we might walk in the way everlasting. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.